Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. other choices. I am your host, Kim. As a warning today, I will be pronouncing a whole lot of words wrong, so enjoy that. This is the Belcher Island Massacre. I was recently talking to someone who had been on vacation to Iceland, and of course, because I've watched Vikings, um, Iceland has been added to my bucket list. And she said that for how expensive it is to travel there, that I could just go to Nunavut or the Maritimes, and it's pretty much the same thing. Like all the things that they have there in Iceland, like the glaciers, northern lights, rocky coasts with the fjords and cliffs, we have that here. And I realized that there are actually so many amazing and glorious parts of Canada that I've never actually been to. Canada is such a beautiful country with so many different landscapes and very rich culture. And I'm actually always surprised when people come from places like Europe or Japan, and they come over here for a vacation, I think like, why would you come to Canada when you live in such an exotic and amazing place? And then I remember that to them, Canada is an exotic and amazing place. I mean, just to see the Rocky Mountains and just the space that we have and the nature that we've preserved here is definitely worth the trip. Having said that, I am not too proud to say that as a Canadian, I have never actually heard of the Belcher Islands until I found this case, which I guess isn't so much a case as a dark story within our Canadian history. The Belcher Islands is a group of islands in the Hudson's Bay, and it's considered part of Nunavut territory, even though they are actually situated physically closer to Ontario and Quebec. I'm personally old enough to remember when Nunavut was still called the Northwest Territories, but some of you probably aren't, but you might hear me refer to the Northwest Territories here and there, and it's just because of the legal documents at the time that refer to it as Northwest Territories. There are a mind-boggling total of 1,500 islands combined to make up the Belchers, which I find just 
completely mind-boggling that I didn't know of any of them. But the entirety of the, all the islands together is only about 3,000 square kilometers. And they're split into four main groups of islands. There's the North Belcher, which is Johnson's Laddie and Slippet and about 700 smaller islands. The Baker's Dozen, which is in the northeast, that's about 50 islands, and some of them are just basically large rocks. The East Belcher, that's 15 islands, and then there's the Flaherty Islands with about 300 more islands that are in the southwest. Flaherty is the only island that's actually inhabited. There's really no trees, a very thin loyal layer of soil, so there's no farming going on there. Um, they have beluga whales, polar bears, fjords. The islands were first spotted by Henry Hudson in 1610, who of course is the founder of the Hudson's Bay Company, nowadays mostly known for those white wool blankets with the green, red, yellow, and blue strips. But the islands were never actually explored and mapped until 1915, so the conditions are harsh there, to say the least. And just to kind of give you an idea of the conditions there, if the polar bears didn't give it away. The average temperature in the winter is minus 20 to minus 29, with wind chills to about minus 51. And in the middle of the summer, they go up to a sweltering 8 degrees. So that's still very cold. They have lots of fog. It is really just the definition of Arctic tundra. I mean, you can picture David Attenborough's voice in the background, fields of ice with polar bears walking across them. And for any of you silent film buffs out there, this is where the 1922 Nanook of the North was filmed, which was written and directed by Robert Flaherty, which of course is where they got the name for the islands. And Flaherty was actually hired by Sir William Mackenzie to explore for iron ore in the Hudson's Bay, or along the Hudson's Bay. And he took a camera along on his trips, and so this film was kind of part documentary, part drama. It followed the life of one particular Inuit family, um, but it was considered even back in 1922 as fairly controversial. It was criticized for being really staged. The um, patriarch Anuk of the family was actually named Alakajilak and not Nanook. Um, but Flaherty thought that that was too hard for white folks to pronounce, so he called him Nanook. Nanook actually means polar bear in Inuktitut which is the language of the Inuit people. Now, sorry, there is a lot of blah, blah, blah before the story, but the blah, blah, blah sets the scene. So just stay with me a bit. I just want to talk a little bit about some terminology here. The term Indian, although considered now outdated and kind of offensive, is actually still used because of the legal significance with regards to the Indian Act, which identifies a person's status under that Indian Act. So it's important for that reason and sticks around for that alone. Um, so that's why you might hear the term like Minister of Indian Affairs or something like that, but it's not to be used to describe a person's heritage, only their legal status, if that makes sense. Indigenous is an umbrella term for First Nations, Median, Inuit people. It's very similar to the term Aboriginal and is sort of interchangeable with Indigenous in the definition sense, but you're not to use them interchangeably in the same document or in the same conversation. You pick one or the other, but don't go back and forth. 
And then First Nations generally refers to reserved-based communities and the people, and technically only refers to those who have Indian status under Canadian law or under that Indian Act. Um, So this is different than Métis or Inuit. Métis are considered a specific Indigenous group. They have a very specific social history. Their ancestry dates back to about 1700, when the French and the Scottish fur traders that were here married Indigenous women. So this particular group, the Métis group, has been fighting for their recognition, the status of Indians under Canadian law, to be able to have the same rights um, under the treaties of the Indian Act. Inuit is another specific group. They have historically been located in that Arctic region. They are both legally and culturally distinct from First Nations. They are, as just like the Métis, not legally defined as Indians. Now, the term Eskimo is no longer used at all. It is considered derogatory. You might hear me use the word or use the term Eskimo in the story, but it's only when it's quoted from documents that are essentially 80 years old. Anyways, let's move on. So because the Belcher Islands were not explored by white settlers until 1915, the Inuit people were pretty much left alone to live their lives, do their own things in the way that their ancestors had done for much longer than the First Nations people in other parts of the country. And as far as religion or spirituality, ideology, before colonialism, um, when of course the settlers felt that Christianity was the only and right religion, the Inuit people practiced what's called animism, which is that each animal has its own spirit, its own soul, which they call an Inua. The moon, the air, the sea also have their own souls, as do the lakes, mountains, and stars. And they treated everything, everything with respect. found a couple examples of some of their hunting traditions that I really quite liked. So seals and whales were, when they were drug onto the shore after being caught, they would be offered a drink of fresh water. And they did that because they felt that it was a way to welcome them Uh, into the human world as our guests and by doing that that their souls would return to the sea and be happy to be caught again and of course they would also tell their other sea animals that um, you know the, the humans were it was okay to be caught by the humans if they killed a polar bear the head of the polar bear would be placed Um, facing the direction where the bears were usually coming from so that the bear's soul could find its way home again. And they thought that it took about five days for it to, to reach back, to get back to its home. So during those five days, they would close its eyes and plug the nostrils so that it wouldn't be disturbed by any of the sights and smells of humans. And its mouth was smeared with blubber to keep it nice and moist the head was given presence, and death was considered to be a passage to a new existence. So there were two two places you could go when you died. One was in the sky and one was in the sea. And they actually, sort of the opposite of, of many religions, they believe that the sea, so sort of the underground, was actually a better place to go because the people in living there just enjoyed whale hunting and it was just, there was a lot to do, whereas up in the sky... It was considered kind of a boring existence. Um, They believed that it wasn't so much your moral behavior that would determine 
where you went in the afterlife, but rather the way in which you died, which I believe is similar to the Vikings' belief. They also practiced shamanism, and the shaman were also considered their doctors. They were very well educated in the ways of the world, uh, more so than maybe some of the others. And as with any religion, there were some basic principles for good and bad behaviors, punishments for bad behaviors. So, for example, if the the sea anua or the sea soul who controlled all the sea animals could basically withhold them from you if they the sea anua thought that you had committed some kind of bad behavior or a taboo. So once again, I'm getting way too enthralled in my research, so we're going to get to the story. But first, just a note that this story takes place in 1941. So during World War II and just after it ended, the Inuit people in the Belcher Islands actually went through a really hard time. And after 1915, when the colonizers, they didn't actually set up a camp there, but they did set up a trading post. I think it was called Moose Factory because what they did is they started trading the fur pelts with them and that really changed things for them quite a bit a lot of the really good hunters that were there they sort of started to make this move more towards um hunting fur pelts rather than you know game for them to eat because it was just more lucrative and so that sort of started the process of them becoming a little bit more dependent on these traded goods but during the war there just really wasn't much to go around and the ships and the planes that were um, that used to bring the stuff were now being used for the war so during that time the best hunters had very high status in the community which was only about 200 people because they just they relied on their skills so much Uh, and this hardship is I think a really important aspect to the story because they were actually facing starvation and then to top it off they'd had a particularly really harsh winter so things were really tough for them in 1941 in the Kikitani Truth Commission community histories document Johnny Tukaluk actually explained a bit about this. This was in 2008 in the Truth Commission. He says, quote, I remember a lot of things from living in the camp because I experienced hunger. When the routes we would usually take were not good, then everything we could get, we couldn't get. We would try to look for other things that had washed up to the beach, looking for food when plants grew on the land. That is what we would eat and live on. Plants aren't red meat. They would also eat seafood, mussels, sculpin, and seaweed. And that's what we lived on in the past. It was more difficult in the wintertime when there was no food, when there wasn't anything available, no seals, no heat. We used to eat dog meat. One dog would be used to try to feed the whole camp. That is what we experienced. That was our way of life, and we were not afraid to live it. Okay, now I'm getting to the story, I promise. So one of the things that colonizers liked to do was send missionaries to places. So at some point, a missionary had come, and we really don't know anything about this particular missionary, but when he was there, he translated a Bible into Iniktutuk. Uh, And it's a bit sketchy how all this started, but I believe someone who was likely a shaman, just um, because they were considered very smart problem solvers, read some passages and started to talk to the others about what he had read. And so very, very slowly, some ideas of Christianity were starting to, to spread a bit. And the hardships of the time probably helped make some people feel that the like the Anuas of the animals and the lakes in that around, the land around them had 
started to fail them or were maybe punishing them for something. But like always, there is always that one guy or girl that reads a few things and then runs in a wild direction with it. One such wild man in the Belcher Islands was a man named Charlie Orak, who was around 27 years old, just your very average Inuit, not one of the best hunters, and apparently he was really short. Um, But he had read a few passages from this Bible, which he referred to as the little book, but later admitted that he didn't read good or write. So one night he, he looks up at the sky and sees this spectacular meteor shower just lighting up the night sky. And he remembers a passage in Matthew about Jesus's return. The stars will fall from the sky and you will see the Son of Man coming. So he interprets this as soon it's going to be the end of the world. Now, Charlie considered himself a shaman and considered Jesus to be the white man's shaman. So late in January of 1941, he calls a meeting in this community igloo on Flaherty Island. And the the Inuit people, they are storytellers, and that's what they would do. So they, you know, to fight boredom and that, they would sit around and they would tell these stories and make the little jokes. That's how they sort of entertained themselves. So they did listen to Charlie's story where he proclaimed, quote, I am Jesus Christ preparing the people for when the other Jesus comes. So Charlie told them that this man named Peter Sala, who was one of the great hunters and ice navigators, that he embodied the spirit of God. Now, Peter didn't really contest this. And together, the two of them started to paint this really great picture for them all of this new life that was about to come where they're going to be free of hunger. They're not going to have to work at all. Everything's going to be provided for them. All they had to do was believe. And their first order of business as God and Jesus was to order the death of almost all of the sled dogs. There was not going to be any need for any kind of sled travel soon because I don't know, they were probably going to be able to fly or something. So this, these sled dogs were all killed. And of course, this also meant that anyone who didn't believe wouldn't be able to leave the camp at all because these sled dogs were their only means of transportation. So Peter told them that even though he looked the same on the outside, on the inside he was God. And the Inuit belief is that everything in nature, people, animals, rocks, rains, have a soul, and that a soul can travel from one person or one thing to another. So a person could look the same on the outside and could have a completely different spirit. So this wasn't really far-fetched for them to believe this. And he started to gather some followers because some of the people were looking for an escape from this hunger and this hardship, and it all sounds really good to them. So about half the people on the island, and remember there's only about 200 people on the island, Um, started to believe in what Peter and Charlie were selling. But not everyone believed in Peter and Charlie's claims. So on the evening of January 25th, the people in the camp on Flaherty Island gathered together in, again, in the community igloo to pray to, of course, Charlie and Peter now. Uh, And there was, now there's a bit of a disagreement about how this all went down. So in some accounts, a girl named Sarah Apokuk, who was 13 years old, came out 
directly to Peter and Charlie and told them that he wasn't Jesus or God, but that they were just another Inuit. But then another story, and probably the more likely accurate version, is that Alec, who was Sarah's brother, questioned her belief and then called her out in front of everyone. So Alex then grabbed her by her hair, punched her, and beat her with what's called an entautak, which is one of those sticks that they would use to beat on the leather side of a fur pelt to soften them up. Alec then asks Charlie whether Sarah should live or die, and Charlie just says, well, she's not worth sparing because she's no good, um, and it was just as well to kill her. So a f- a few of them dragged her outside of this community igloo. And then a 19-year-old girl named Akinik proceeded to smash in Sarah's head with the butt of a rifle because clearly she had been possessed by Satan. And so they left her body in in another igloo and then knocked the igloo down on top of her. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And this is kind of important because traditionally, uh, the Inuit people, when someone in their community dies, they would very carefully lay rocks on top of the body in like a nice neat pile so just knocking down an igloo and scattering it on top of them is is like a a sign of disrespect um, because again they saw her that she was satan so after sarah's death there was a man named kitawak now he's what's called an inuit catechist so basically a teacher of religion and he was a believer in the bible and an avid reader of that bible that had been left behind and he'd been trying to teach the community the true word of god and he was arguing with charlie and peter that they were leading the others astray and quote talking the wrong things about god and so he stormed out of this this igloo And the next morning, he came back and he sort of stuck his head in the small door. You have to sort of picture an igloo. And I think literally they look like you see on TV. Like they're like sort of rounded, hooded places. They have a small little door. Um, And so he sort of stuck his head in the door, just kind of continuing the argument a bit to see if he's gotten any support over the night. And Peter hits him in the mouth with a wooden stick. 
So he backs off and goes back to his own igloo to pray for them. Peter came out later and finds him, reaches through this window or door of the igloo and stabs him with a harpoon and asks him what he's going to do now. So another man, Adlecock, who believed, of course, Peter, uh, what he was saying, that Katawek was Satan, took Peter's rifle and shot him in the shoulder and then again in the head, believing that he was no good as well. And the other people of the community, the other believers, wouldn't touch him at that point because they said he was full of the devil. So they did the same thing to him. They basically left him in the igloo and then knocked it down on top of them, um, exactly the same as they had done to Sarah. Two weeks later, Charlie was on Tekorica Island, teaching the camp there about this Jesus's imminent arrival. And I'm not really sure how he got there, considering he had all the sled dogs killed. But anyways, while he was preaching his gospel to the to the camp, a woman named Eva and her husband, Ikpuk, said that they didn't believe him. And Charlie, of course, called them devils. And when a bunch of them threatened to beat her, she changed her mind a bit and said that she did believe a little. But Ikpuk said, no, I still don't believe it. He continued to insist that although he believe, did believe in God and Jesus, he did not believe that Charlie or Peter were either of them. So Charlie asked a man named Quarak, who was actually Ikpuk's father-in-law, to kill Satan. So Quarak shot him shot Ikpuk three times and he was actually leaving so they shot him twice in the back and then the third shot hit him in the head and then they just let, left him laying there on the ice until Peter Sala arrived later and told them to bury him but again because they believed that Ikpuk was he had Satan's spirit in him they, they celebrated that he was dead um, but they didn't want to touch him so Charlie, a woman named Mina, who is actually Peter's sister, and Mo, her husband Moses, they, instead of doing the thing where they cover the body carefully with stones, they just threw a bunch of rocks on top of them. Again, just a sign of disrespect. Two months after that, Charlie's, his, this new gospel of his, had actually spread over to Camsel's Island, like a completely different island, where... Mina and her husband Moses were living. So again, Mina is Peter's sister. Um, and of course, she was one of his staunchest supporters. On the 29th of March, and this was around lunchtime, and it, one of the year's worst blizzards is happening right now. So it is cold. It is wind like crazy. It would be one of those minus 51 wind chills. Mina suddenly is overcome with what the later court documents refer to as religious frenzy. And she went about running through the camp, yelling that the stars shall fall from heaven and that Jesus is coming. And she's gathering all these people and chasing them, like like hitting them and, and pushing them onto this sea ice. So like the, you know, the basically the Hudson's Bay would just turn completely to ice, like a big sheet of ice. She 
chases them out there or herds them however you want to say it and at the time she's like she's tearing off their clothes she's telling them get your clothes off get your clothes off because it, she doesn't think it's going to be wise to provoke um, Jesus when he comes by being dressed in what she considered the skins of God's creations um, and now she even tried ripping off her husband Moses's uh, caribou hide pants but Moses was cold and of course embarrassed by the whole thing so he just said no put his pants back on and went back into his igloo and stayed warm so she herded four children and two women onto this ice and quite a distance from the shoreline uh, where, and then she at that time forced the kids and the two women to take off the rest of their clothing, clothing so they were completely naked shouting at them the whole time that they're going to be rewarded when Christ you know suddenly emerges from this storm then Mina turned and left, fleeing the blizzard and the ice to go back to the warmth of her igloo, leaving the children there naked and alone. So six people died that day. There was Johnny, he was seven. He was the adopted son of Peter Sawa. Jonasi, who was six. Uh, Moses, another Moses, who was age 13. And then there was Alex, who was eight, who was actually Peter's biological son. And Nukarak was 55. She was Peter's mother. Kumudluk. Um, now she's referred to as Kumudluk Sarah. She's 32. She's another one of Peter's sisters. And according to the coroner's report, they had all, quote, perished as a result of intense cold and insufficient clothing. So when word got out that P to Peter that two of his sons, his mother and his sister, had all died a result, basically, of his teachings, he started to have a bit of a change of heart and feel quite a bit of remorse. So when he was called out to be a guide for the Hudson's Bay trader named Ernest Rydell to take him out to the Great Whale River, he said to him, quote, I am a bad man, and then told him about the murders of Sarah, Kitawak, and Ipuk. Um, so Rydell, of course, was rather perturbed and upset by this so he so this is before the days of cell phones so he had to actually do a telegraph wire to the Hudson's Bay Company head office in Winnipeg telling them that there had been these murders and they needed to have a police investigation so the Hudson's Bay Company uh, they sent a message then to the de deputy commissioner of the Northwest Territories in Ottawa and he in turn forwarded that messages on to the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and then, of course, there was another delay in trying to find an airplane that was available because, of course, wartime, um, there was, they were just busy doing other things. Finally, on April 11th, there was RCMP Inspector Douglas Martin, Corporal William Grant Kerr, and then Dr. Thomas o Orford, who was a Justice of the Peace and a coroner for the Northwest Territories, showed up on the Belshore Islands. But... This wasn't going to be really an easy case to investigate. Flight plans that were made to investigate Kitawak's murder had to be scrapped because of the weather. Um, ice breakup was preventing the planes from landing, and of course there was quite a bit of fog, so they had to abandon plans as well to examine and retrieve Sarah's body, and all of that was delayed until July, when it was finally warm enough that they could travel. 
And then due to the remoteness and these extreme climate conditions, Dr. Orford, who again was the coroner, could only do external examinations of the bodies because they were completely frozen, so they just weren't able to do any kind of internal examinations. And then, rather than locating witnesses for questioning, because, of course, the people are just really widely dispersed out of these camps, so what the police did instead is they basically, when an Inuit person came into the Hudson's Bay Company post, they would just instruct them, like, hey, when you go back, can you uh, bring some people in for questioning? RCMP investigator Douglas Martin relayed in a document that I found um, it was written by P.W. Lansenbauer. It was like a thesis. Anyways, it was called Religious Frenzy and the Application of Canadian Law. Um, he says, quote, At noon of April 13th, I, went to, I left the Hudson's Bay Company post at Belcher Islands, accompanied by Dr. Orford, Coroner, Reverend G. Nelson, missionary from Whale River, Eva Narumi, widow of Alex Kitawak, and native Anawak with his dog team. After walking through deep wet snow, we arrived at Tukarak camp at around 2.30 p.m., some six miles from the post. We found four deserted igloos and no Eskimo in the vicinity. Even Narumi pointed to a rocky ledge some hundred yards from the igloos and told me that her husband was lying under some rocks there. A pile of rocks was found at the spot indicated and on throwing them aside, the body of young Eskimo of a young Eskimo was found frozen solidly. The rocks had evidently been thrown on the body and not built up as the custom among Eskimo when burying their dead. The body was fully clothed and the head was covered with a mixture of frozen blood and snow. The parka was raised and the thumb of the left hand was inserted underneath the suspender with the hand resting on the bare chest. Dr. Orford carefully examined the corpse and found there where two bullets had entered the back and one in the head. Native Anawak positively identified the body of, as that of Kitawak. After a stop at Tukarak Camp on Tukarak Island in connection with the death of Kitawak, we continued on to Council Island, some seven miles southeast of Tukarak Island, arriving there after dark. We camped there for the night near Eskimo Moses and his wife Mina, who were the only other occupants of the island. The next morning, accompanied by native Moses, we walked about a half mile from our camp to inspect four Eskimo graves. Rocks piled up over the deceased. The graves were opened, and in them we found the bodies of two adult Eskimo females and three young Eskimo boys, two of which were in a single grave. A little further away was another grave containing the body of an Eskimo boy. All were wrapped in their eider duck skin parkas and were identified by native Moses as Eskimo Jonasy, Johnny, adopted son of Peter Salak, Alec, the son of Peter Sala, in a grave separate from the others, and Kumdilak Sarah, sister of Peter Sala, and Nukarak, mother of Peter Sala. The bodies were examined by Dr. Orford and the graves then closed. The same afternoon, we returned to the Hudson's Bay Company post bringing Mina and her husband Moses back with us. On the evening of the 14th of April, an inquest was opened to inquire into the deaths of Johnny, Jonasy, Alex, Moses, Kumdilak, Sarah, and Nukarak by Dr. Orford, coroner for the Northwest Territories. So after the police investigations were done, Akinik uh, and Akinik and Apokuk were jointly charged with Sarah's murder. 
Peter and Delacock were jointly charged with Kitawak's murder, and then Quarak and Charlie were charged with Ikpuk's murder, and then Mina was charged only with murdering Jonasi for some reason. The trials began, and they were done on the Elcher Belcher Islands on the 19th of August in 1941 under Chief Justice Charles Plaxton. So these trials were held in the Belcher Islands rather than in that Moose Factory detachment, which was on more of the mainland um, or another southern location, just because the government believed that it was doing it there was going to help demonstrate to the people the importance of the Canadian laws. Um, there weren't any members for a jury available, so what they did is they used Canadian press reporter James McCook, Toronto Star reporter William Kim Maud, Char- Fort Charles engineer Edward Cadney, and then the Belcher Islands Hudson's Bay Company post manager Ernest Rydell, which is the one Peter had um, confessed to, and then uh, there was also a mining engineer, um, last name was Holtzman, and a pro- a prospector named Jack Ruby. Um, and apparently the use of the same jury members throughout all of the trials was necessary because there was, quote, the shortage of white subjects of the Crown available. The trials of all seven of them took only two days and the jury reached their verdicts um, and, well, and actually the sentencing was passed and everything before 3 p.m. the following day. The Pacock, so the one that was the one that beat his sister with a stick, he was acquitted of murder um, because there was insufficient evidence that the assault that he had done had actually resulted in um, his sister's death. And Adelacock, he's the one that shot Kitawak. Um, he was sentenced to one year's imprisonment with hard labor uh, at the RCMP guard room in Chesterfield Inlet. Peter Sala and Charlie got two years of hard labor and ordered not to return to the Belcher Islands. They were basically exiled. Uh, But since it was too late in the season to transport the prisoners over to Chesterfield, they spent the winter at the Moose Factory Detachment and then were transported to Chesterfield uh, the following summer. The jury found Korak guilty of manslaughter, but the jury recommended mercy because he had been, quote, carried away with religious hysteria and had only acted out of Charlie's instructions when he killed his son-in-law. And Plaxton, the judge, actually released him on a two-year suspended sentence and, quote, recognizance to keep the peace and to be of good behavior and to provide meat for and protect Salah's family during his imprisonment, end quote. Mina, meanwhile, was found to be um, acquitted due to uh, temporary insanity. Akinik, that was the girl that beat Sarah to death, she was found not guilty on account of temporary insanity as well. But there was speculation that the judge, Plaxton, was a bit of a Neanderthal and he had described the Inuit people as, quote, still in an early stage of evolution as human beings of a childlike nature, low mental growth and primitive condition of life. Um, and because of that, uh, they felt that's why the jury didn't want to convict um, her of murder. And now throughout both Charlie, Peter and Adelok's imprisonment, the RCMP 
actually were ordered to distribute some weekly rations to their families to keep, basically keep them going. Things like um, flour, tea, lard, that kind of thing. And they also provided 10 rounds of ammunition weekly or the equivalent value in shot powder to Quarek to hunt for the families of the prisoners. Peter's family went with him after he was released from prison out to Nunavik. That's where he was um, sort of exiled to. And after his release, the RCMP actually reported that he had he continued to be a very good hunter and that he had they had actually used his services as a boat pilot for some charters that they'd done. But despite all that, um, Peter's sort of exile to Nunavut had a very negative effect on his children. Uh, his son, Marcosi Salasenior, um, said in his testimony at the Kikitani Truth Commission in 2010, um, that quote, as I was growing up as a child, we didn't have neighbors. We lived mostly alone as a camp with our parents. That is what I remember. Since we mostly kept to ourselves and because we didn't grow up with other people around me, I am bothered by other people around me. That is why I'm affected by a lot of people. I don't want to be like that. There is a book um, about this story. It's called At the End of the World by Lawrence Millman, uh, if you are interested. Although I didn't really hear very good things, but I didn't read it um, for this case. I heard that it's actually just a platform for his personal rants about globalization and technology. Um, but in 2017, he told Vice, quote, I was there in 2001, and, it ha and I happened to be there at the time of 9-11. Most of the elders wouldn't talk to me about the murders. They were embarrassed by them, humiliated. As one man said, if your daughter was raped, would you go around talking about it? He thought these murders made them look primitive. At the time, the Inuit in the Belcher Islands weren't primitive, they were traditional. And that was the story of the Belcher Island Massacre. Thank you so very much for listening, and I hope that I didn't bore you too much with the blah blah blah, but sometimes I find that stuff is really interesting, but maybe that's just me. But I hope you enjoyed today's story. And I'm going to be back here again next week. And I hope you will be too. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.